This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When's the last time you got a handwritten letter or stared out the window or went on vacation without checking your email. Did the internet kill the good old days? Or is this just nostalgia talking? This is Device and Virtue. Oh, hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. Hey, Chris. Today, we are talking about 100 things we lost to the internet. The 100 <laughs> things we gained from the internet. No, nope. Lost. <laughs> These are things that the internet has taken away from us, stolen from our souls. So we got 4 billion web pages, and you want to talk about what's not there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because sometimes the most significant changes happen when things disappear. Oh, gosh. You, yeah. So we stole this book concept, 100 Things We Lost from the Internet, from author Pamela Paul. Yes. She's a New York Times editor, was the editor of the New York Times Book Review, writes an op-ed column, and decided to write a book about all the stuff she misses because <laughs> the internet ruined her life. Yes, exactly. It's my description yeah, of what this book she, is. I think she describes herself as at one point as like the grandpa saying, get off my lawn. Oh, and, does she? Because I was thinking yeah, that. Yeah. She definitely is self-aware enough to recognize that she's being a little curmudgeonly and coming across that way. A here. little. This is an Adam book. Have I ever heard of <laughs> I did bring it and suggest it. It just intrigued Let's do me. this one. Yeah. <laughs> it intrigued me. I mean, she says interesting things like we lost our attention span okay. or oh. we're losing handwritten letters and penmanship. Oh, that's sad. Love <laughs> notes to our pen pal in junior we, high. We lost the Rolodex. Although I've heard people still talk about a Rolodex that are like Gen Z. So the Rolodex is still this metaphor that people are using in their heads, which is mm, funny. Ironically. Ironically, perhaps, but still. I really like, I mean, she had a bunch of good ones. The phone in the kitchen <laughs> was one of my favorites because she like talked about how you run to answer the phone, the kids like in right, the kitchen, right, grab right, it. Right. And there was a certain age where you got trained that you are allowed to answer the phone. I don't know if this was true for you, uh -huh. but it was in our house. It was like, okay, well, they're going to teach us how to do it. And she had the same thing. So it's like Ridgeway residence, yeah. Christopher speaking. <laughs> oh. or, and I don't know, maybe we said, I don't think we said, how may we direct your call? <laughs> I don't even know how we said it. We'd be like, can I ask who's, I don't know. And then you'd like, yes, my father's home. Yeah, Just a moment, speaking? please. <laughs> Yeah. We definitely don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. My seven-year-old nephew just a couple months ago was like, but couldn't you just see who was calling? And we realized he had never lived in a world where they didn't have caller ID. Let's turn back time. We're ruining our children. I can't. <laughs> right? This book really raised the question for me about, is she right in some sense? Are there ways that we could say, yes, there are things that we've lost that would be good and worth keeping? How do we evaluate whether something from the past is worthwhile? We live in this world where everything is new all the time 
change is happening all the time, but I wouldn't say all change is good. And so how would we go about figuring that out? And this book sort of raises that question. I don't know that we'll answer that question, but I hope we can explore it a little bit through a couple different examples that she comes up with. I see. Because we did an episode this season, last episode, where we talked about how do we know a new technology now, like the Apple Vision Pro, could become our future. Yes. You're saying, how do we know whether something from the past could actually be worth keeping? Exactly. Like like a Xerox machine or something. I don't even know. Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) is she just being nostalgic, longing for the good old days? Or is there some wisdom in the past? Because even as Christians, we believe that there are things in the past that we've brought forward in our traditions, in our faith, that are worth keeping. What in the modern world might we say is also worth keeping? She has lots of interesting examples, and we're going to pick a few. You picked a few, I picked a few, and we're going to just pitch them and talk about them. Yeah, I guess 100 Things is going to go down to six, which is great. (laughs) I got three, you got three. I'll start. Okay, a hundred things we lost to the internet. The one I'm picking to point out is Scrabble. <laughs> like, apparently the game Scrabble. So Pamela oh, yeah. Ball writes about the things she's worried that we lost, and she says Scrabble. And I'm going to quote her, because actually, excellent writer. I like her writing. She goes, I can't get anyone to play Scrabble, or what I like to call real Scrabble <laughs> with me, the kind with a game board and lettered tiles. No matter whether the immaculately buffed wooden ones or the cheaper plastic kind. Either way, they offer a delicious tile smoothness, (laughs) filling the little black drawstring bag and slipping between your fingers as you withdraw what you hope will be the perfect set of seven. You place them in your display rack and guard them like you're holding down a trench line. (laughs) Oh, man. Your sarcasm is dripping, Chris. (laughs) No. One, I love her description of that. You can feel the tiles flipping on the table Mm -hmm. and like you're holding them. Hearing them rattle in the bag a little bit. (laughs) And as I was going through the, you know, you handed me this book and you're like, pick some. So I'm like looking through the table of contents. I don't particularly care about Scrabble. It's not that nostalgic for me. I've played it, whatever, with grandma and other things. (laughs) We used to play Speed Scrabble. Oh. Yeah. You'd like pour out just mm-hmm. the tiles and make your own no, sort of sets of letters. Yeah, same, yeah yep. same thing. But I thought this was a great example because of the way she approaches it. Okay. First of all, she talks about, I can't get anyone to play Scrabble. And I'm thinking there are millions of people playing Words with Friends. Exactly. I've right? played Words with Friends. <laughs> the yep. Words with Friends game, which is essentially a version of Scrabble that was an app online. And you can play long distance. Who hasn't played that with people standing in the checkout line, right. with nieces and nephews, with, with groups of friends? It's like a fun game. I feel like Scrabble actually has shot up on popularity, mm-hmm. not down. So to start with that, but her version of Scrabble in her head are these tiles and the tactile feelings. And she goes, not have, trying not to have your brother look at your tiles. Those are number <laughs> of things. She gets so nostalgic, she complains about not accidentally losing the tiles. For her, one of the experiences is like trying to find a tile under the couch. That's what she's complaining about. This is nostalgia at the highest level. Okay. It's like so fun. And what I think is happening is her emotions are linked to this family experience mm. that she had when she was younger. And I find that this was the tone of this and a lot of her other points, that she had an emotional relational moment. Mm. She recalls, and she links it to something, maybe a technology of old, a tool. 
And that's what she wants from it. Mm -hmm. And did we lose that to the internet? No, but society changed. Yeah, I'm noticing what you're saying, that she has this experience with a group of people. She has a relational experience, but it's around this Scrabble board. And Mm -hmm. she, yes, she's describing sort of the tactility of it. Ooh, tactility. (laughs) Yeah. But if I play words with friends now... I'm sitting on my couch alone at home, not having a experience around the board face to face with other people. And that is a loss, right? No, because you're doing that sort of replacement theory analysis where it's like the one to one. Oh, we had Scrabble and that was the social thing. Now we have words with friends that doesn't feel social. It is social, of course. It's just not in person. But the but that's a different kind of social. Absolutely. But I just want to say, have you stopped getting together with friends? Because I haven't. I get together with friends all the time. We like sit around the table. We have a drink. We discuss. We laugh. And sometimes we play games right in the room. <laughs> this is the internet replacement theory of the internet came and the other thing went away. But that's usually not true. I hear what you're saying. And I'm not here to defend the virtues of Scrabble. But I think it does create a shared experience in ways that like sitting around your, with your friends just chatting doesn't. I agree that there's nostalgia here, but I do think there is a virtue in those tangible particulars. And the fact that her relational experience is tied to the Scrabble game says something about both the tangibility of the Scrabble game and the relationships. It becomes a bit of a symbol, sure, of the relationships and you know, the searching under the couch, like it becomes symbolic. Yes. And with the loss of the, that tangibility, what symbols do we have that are replacing that symbol? Is it my text messaging? I don't have much tie or care about the words with friends app on my phone. There's not a lot of nostalgia there. Maybe some people will have that nostalgia when they get old, but they won't have the object anymore at goodwill or wherever. <laughs> By an old with, Words with Friends app. Yeah. I got like a broken corner on it and some missing pieces, but they're like, it still works. Yeah. Look, it still connects to the internet. <laughs> yeah. That tangible symbol, I think, is lost. And I think what it represents is deeper than what it is in its, of itself. Well, and I want to rescue this a little bit too, because I sort of agree with what you're saying. I was thinking about this wider frame about communications technologies. I've always said they're a little bit unique in the realm of technology. Mm-hmm. The technologies that mediate our thought and our emotion Mm -hmm. are the most linked, I think, to who we are as humans. Yeah. And so a shovel is one thing, but a book is another. Communications technologies particularly are undivorceable from our embodiment. That tactileness she's describing, and I'm going to call Scrabble this relational communication sort of mode, okay? But that tactileness she's feeling, I was thinking about other examples, and you would relate to a lot of these. Mm-hmm. You love the fact that you can flip through a book, especially an old book, and feel it in your hands. Right. right. You still get the book right. every time we do a book review, <laughs> whereas I get the Kindle version because yeah. you like to touch it. And even I still like old books. For your birthday, I give you this older book. Yeah. Uh, and I liked how it smelled, like when I flipped through the pages. It right. smelled cool. It right. had that old paper smell. Yeah. Somehow, I don't think we ever lose our embodiment in the sense that what's happened is we remain embodied, but sometimes the context becomes a little bit more divorced. So you mm-hmm. talked about word with friends on the couch. Say you had an amazing memory of a words with friends with a special <laughs> person, but you might actually remember the couch. Yeah. If you've ever had a really touching conversation with a person in a coffee shop or a restaurant, 
sometimes if we have a special mm-hmm. moment, we remember where we were when that happened. Mm-hmm. Or if you read a book that has a deep thought that really triggers something in you, sometimes we remember where we were or what we were doing when that happens, mm-hmm. the embodied relationship to that. I think what happens now is I have memories of getting a text message that really shook me. Yeah. But where I was, the other person wasn't in that frame of embodiment, mm-hmm, even though the mm-hmm. communications technology is seared with the physicality of that. Sure. So, yeah. so like, I get where she's coming from, that tactileness, mm-hmm. that physicality that links with the mm-hmm. communication mode. Yeah, I get that. I think the place, like the couch is fairly agnostic to that experience or that event. The place whether you're in a coffee shop is agnostic to that event. You could have a really great memory there. You could have a really bad memory. I suppose you get a really great memory with Scrabble or a really bad one if you got trounced. But the specificity of the Scrabble tiles is integrally related to the experience itself in a way that like the couch isn't. So I think those sorts of symbols, they become symbolic and meaningful in part because they are somehow integral to the experience. The couch, the coffee shop, they're a little more agnostic. They're a little more generic. No, they are. And that's my point is we are going to remain physically, we're going to have physical remembrance of things, whether or not it's closely linked or it's divorced from the context. Another thing we lost from the internet, Chris, was obviously our memory. Okay. Pamela Paul talks about if you are trying to remember something, if you want to remember something, obviously you're going to write it down. You're going to take a picture of it, maybe, if it's an event or Absolutely. an experience. That's how I and do it. She, yes, I know you take so many photos. <laughs> but, but I use it as a little brain. She, uh-huh. she uses this term cognitive offloading. Yeah. So we're offloading our cognitive work to writing it or taking a photo to remember it. Okay. But then those resources that we offload things to end up coming back and informing and shaping our memory. So I write something down, I see a photo and it comes back and it actually creates a different or new memory or augments the memory in a different way. So she has a really good example in the book. She says, one morning rushing to my office, my mind chasing after a dozen things I needed to do that day. I got a notification on my phone. You have a new memory. It said out of nowhere, (laughs) a photo I'd taken on a trip to Australia in 2017 popped up. Why now? I wondered. I clicked on the notification. Something in the algorithm must have told the internet I needed to see the images of Sydney Harbor waterfront. Perhaps it was entirely random. I would never have thought that particular view at this particular moment of all moments. Only one thing I knew for sure, I had a new memory. And I really like that example because we've all had that experience. I have photos pop up on my phone all the time that say, hey, do you remember all the events of fall or here's experiences of snow from the last 10 years or here's someone from your past life that you aren't in touch with anymore that you took a selfie with (laughs) and you're just like (laughs) yeah the ways that we form those memories they get augmented they get changed and our current experience is changed because these memories come back on us or maybe i encounter a set of scrabble tiles at goodwill and it brings back (laughs) this memory right (laughs) Uh-huh. It's not necessarily that we've lost the memory, but it's that our memories are augmented, they're changed. Yeah. They're completely reformed. This made me think of one of our favorite passages from Socrates Absolutely. from Plato, right? 
in the Phaedrus that the he, Phaedrus. he's talking about. They invented writing. And one guy's like, this is great. Now we're going to remember everything. And Socrates is, no, actually, it's going to become a receipt for memory. Create forgetfulness in their mind. Right. We'll have the reputation for wisdom without the reality of wisdom, is how he phrases it. Because he links memory to wisdom. He links knowledge to wisdom there, which is questionable. (laughs) It's funny because this week, as you and I were prepping for this recording session, Okay, what is he going to say? One thing that happened was you were like, when are we recording next? We were sorting it out and you were like, it was on my calendar for today, so I didn't even think about it. And then you said, I'm a slave to my system, (laughs) which is, I totally feel that too. So I'm not putting it all on you. I give him one quote and he writes it, he etches it in stone. He's so excited. Has it on his wall. We have become so dependent on our calendars and our photos and everything we write down in our notes app. And how has that changed our memory? Have we simply just lost it? Has it gone into the ether and we've just cognitively offloaded everything? Yeah, right. So that's cognitive offloading. Although I want to take the first one about these photos that appear. Google and Facebook both will do that, right? Here's a memory from 2012. And you're like, look at that haircut. (laughs) Just then it's a little rough. I should have, what was I thinking? (laughs) One thing Pamela Paul says is those photos that we take, they're just as likely to memorialize moments to forget as they are moments to remember. So we might have one come up that we're like, I don't even remember that. Yeah, I think that's what it does. Our memories are notoriously poor. Yeah, they're like sieves. We lose all sorts of things. Things that really happened, by the way. It's really important to make that distinction. Like real events with real people and real time, our memory will misremember, lose, forget, or form in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so there could be a temptation to feel like our memory without like the photos, for instance, is the real story. But of course it's not, which is why we have witnesses in courts, because we've known as humans for a long time, our memories, our individual memories Mm -hmm. are not the full story. They're not even sometimes the correct story. Mm -hmm. You know, Ted Chiang explores this whole concept in The Truth of Fact, The Truth of Fiction, his short story about having a remem device, the device that records all the video of your life and you can refer back to it, right? And his question, is it better for us to have this highly accurate right? high resolution recording of every conversation, um, which is what we have when we're doing this podcast right now. (laughs) In some ways, we know exactly what we said, whereas when we're just sitting, just chatting, we don't remember exactly what we said, which is better. And his conclusion, it's a fascinating story if we haven't read it, so it's highly recommended. His conclusion is that it cuts both ways, right? So that sometimes the high resolution memory is helpful in other ways. We need that ability to forget and If I remember, she actually has another one of these things on the 100s of like memory, but the ability to forget. Yeah, blocking things out, (laughs) she says. We've lost the ability to block things out. And early, so going back to these photo tools like with Facebook or Google, early iterations of this, sometimes it would pop up a memory of of a lost spouse or a pet. And sometimes it was nostalgic, but sometimes it was really difficult Mm -hmm. for people. And so really early on, they figured out we need to give people an option to say, hey, I don't want to see photos of this person right? or this day event. And so all these apps, you can say, I don't want to see that memory anymore as a way to sort of not (laughs) re-traumatize. And we're probably going to get higher resolution on those kind of controls as we go. But there's something true and cool and good about using these augmented things to enhance our very flawed memory. Mm. 
And I'm going to say that's happened since the photograph. So we can go into the history with Susan Sontag, who is the sort of the communication theorist you think about mm. when studying the photograph. But certainly you remember sitting at home on your living room floor, flipping through a photo album right. of your parents' wedding, right? <laughs> like sometimes they're right before we are, but they're part of our family history. Sure. Sometimes we were there, but we were young. And for me, and like a lot of other people, my memory of what the black and white striped couch looked like in South Carolina where we lived there it comes from the photo. Mm. I don't remember what it looked like because I was two, three, four, and five. But yeah. I like sharing that memory with my sister and my yeah. parents. We joke about that couch because it was like the 70s built into a couch. <laughs> it was aggressively striped. <laughs> but we talk about it from the photo. That's where Eric and I really get our memory of that. But it was true and it happened. And so that augmented memory is actually a gift. So that couch has really become a symbol in your family a very tangible symbol, like maybe Scrabble tiles. Perhaps? Yeah, we probably played words with friends from it. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, I was with my niece and nephew a week ago, and I'm a weird uncle. I asked him a weird question about <laughs> when you think of a memory of yourself, just a normal experience, do you experience, do you see yourself as part of a play or do you see it from your own perspective? So okay. is it a first person ex experience? Is it a third person experience? So I'm talking to my 16 year old nephew and I'm asking him this question and he's like, I have this memory from living in the house with the red door when I was like two and I'm like naming all my cars and I'm kind of over on the right in my image. So I see myself from the third person and I'm like, that's probably because I took that video and posted it on Facebook and you've probably seen it. Yeah. And he's like, oh, didn't remember the video. That it came from there. But yeah. remembered the memory of yeah. himself. Yeah. And the one that's additional thing to note about that is the family and the collectiveness of the memory. Mm -hmm. So he got that because you helped create that memory. Yeah. Even if you didn't have the phone, maybe you would have told him a story later. Sure. Of you remember when he was little and he used to count his trucks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I suggest our memory is formed by others. And some of the way that these photos do that is mediate the memories of all of us together mm -hmm. to create the total package. So I want to pull on one more string that you said around the resolution of memory. She says at one point that our memories are supposed to blur over time in order to help us function. It actually allows us to, like you said, not be re-traumatized by an experience. What's interesting in the example of I can have Apple or Google suppress images of this person is I have to go and make that intentional choice rather than it sort of fading into my past. Naturally, I'm making an intentional choice to push that person into my past. And that is a very different thing, right? I guess to me, it's the question of, is there a virtue to forgetting? Is there a virtue to the blurring of memory? We often maybe think that it's a result of the fall. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's normal and natural and good that we stay who we are in the present and the past sort of fades into the background. Oh, yeah. I always think that one's interesting. I was taught when I was a kid that when we get to heaven, we'll know everything. And I'm not sure where that came from. I don't think it's really scriptural. Because it actually, what that says is that when we get to heaven, we become like God, knowing all. And that's doesn't, we stay creatures. Yeah, and right. so uh, the limitation of our knowledge, the ability for us to see only so far, like I, can I suddenly see for a thousand miles away? No, I think I can still see 50 feet. <laughs> I think that retains, there might be expanded capacity or different capacities, but we don't become infinite. I don't feel like that works. And I think we allow God to carry that for us. 
we perhaps in heaven can ask him for the memories that are good for us rather than have them all just downloaded to us somehow or something. Google, I mean, God, show me 12 years ago. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Chris, what's another thing that we lost to the internet? Something from fifth grade. It's spelling. (laughs) I love spelling. I was so good at spelling. (laughs) Of course you were. I hated spelling. (laughs) Pamela Paul says spelling is one of the things we lost to the internet. Her gosh, her writing is great. She goes, learning to spell in the internet era is like insisting on doing manual arithmetic while holding a calculator. <laughs> Great example. <laughs> and she's complaining about that because yes. autocorrect and we have spell check. She tends to lump together. The internet for her is just all technology. Fair. So like, Fair. you know, it's pretty imprecise because, Smart you know, she's, we, have, we got spell check back in like Microsoft Word in like 2002 or something. Yep. Yep. But for her, you learn spelling when you're a kid and they, now why do you even need to? And it is sort of curmudgeonly. <laughs> It made me immediately think of, and you know I go off on this, in 2,000 years of written human history, spelling is very recent. Okay. Spelling is a late 1800s thing, Mm. and we link it to the core of someone that's smart, of someone that has an education. If someone can't spell, they are uneducated. This just doesn't link to the rest of history. And so I got really nerdy back into the (laughs) history of spelling for a hot second to be like, there was a point in time where smart people didn't need to be able to spell, including like Augustine and Michelangelo. Like spelling (laughs) was not a thing. Spelling is this vestige of the print era. And so it comes from, here's the six point bullet a history lesson that starts with Anglo-Saxon Germanic tribes. (laughs) By the way, English. So I was looking up this linguist. She pointed out immediately, English is the only language that actually has spelling bees. Oh, interesting. And you don't want to know why? Because our spelling is so screwed up. We can do a competition (laughs) with it. Because most other languages, she was like, even difficult ones like Norwegian or Mm. something, follow a really structured set of phonetic rules of spelling. And so it's not much of a game once you learn it to stand up and try to spell it. In English, native speakers cannot know how the heck to spell a word. Yeah. Isn't that why like they give the origin? They they can ask, what's the origin of this word? Is it Latin? Is it German? Is it Thank Greek? you for Whatever. asking. This is back to the Anglo-Saxon tribe. This yeah. is what I learned. So it's like England and you're like really living in Germanic words, Anglo-Saxon yeah. tribes. But then monks come and what we're writing in that ancient Germanic doesn't look like anything you recognize, the right. shapes or not, the right. letters that you know. But then the Latin alphabet comes across in the 8th century. So now we're sounding out things from the Germanic language in the Latin alphabet, the same alphabet that we use today. Got it. But then in 1066, William the Conqueror 
comes in and conquers, he's French. He's from Normandy. Uh. And they bring in all these French words. <laughs> so they, the word house adds O-U, which is mm. this ooh, this French something. And I'm totally going to do it wrong because uh, I don't know. And the silent G in night. Ugh. Comes from, and the silent G is all across our language, mm. comes from these French adding. So you have these French scribes using Latin alphabets doing Germanic <laughs> language. Are you following me? And then in something happens that linguists call the great vowel shift from 1400s to 1700s, 300 oh, man, years. You did go deep. Uh, and, right. And all these things happen. So it used to be nom, but now it's name. And okay. so an A went from this ah sound to what we call a long A. And That's a because sound. it has the E on the end of it now. The E <laughs> right. makes the long but that, A. But the linguist was funny. She goes, it used to be name, and now it's mm. name. And ah. the E became silent. So all these things, linguists know this. Do you remember it? No. But it's what screws up spelling. Okay. <laughs> then a silent K, a silent E, I'll come after that. So this is the point. This is interesting. She goes, some scholars at that point, there's not dictionaries yet, right? People right. hand write and people don't realize this. There's no standardized spelling in the world. Right. Like a monk, when you look at old English, if you've ever looked at old documents, the spelling can even change in the same book. The same word can be spelled one place on one page and another on another page. Yeah. But if you sound it out the way it's supposed to go, you hear it. Okay. Because it was, I've said a lot on our podcast, written language is more like an, a cassette tape, audio or cassette tape. That's an 80s reference. It's probably something else we've lost in the internet. <laughs> That's something we lost, yeah. <laughs> but it's stored audio, right? Like the written thing. They write it down, they cram it on the page because page is expensive, and then you read it aloud so people can hear it. Okay. So the actual spelling doesn't matter so much as long as the smart person reading it can sound it out and do it. But what makes us need to get spelling? Gutenberg's printing press. Gutenberg's printing press, 1440. Like <laughs> the printers start needing to print stuff, mm. but that's going to get distributed far and wide. They don't have any standard way to spell stuff. A couple things happen. One, that printing press is in the mainland of Europe, in sure. Germany. Okay. But English, the home of English is over here in England. We have people creating English books that actually aren't native speakers of English. So not only is English really oh, screwed funny. up, but they actually are not positive how to spell it. <laughs> so they start landing on spelled words in the printing press mm. that aren't the actual spelling that people are using over in England. Oh, funny. And they wind up adding additional things. Linguists are so cool. They get into all this. I'm like, but they freeze it in time. The technology of the printing press mm freezes a bunch of misspellings in time because now everyone needs to use that misspelling. Oh, so fascinating. At the time, this linguist said scholars wanted to get rid of the silent E <laughs> and get rid of the silent G because why do we need them anymore? Mm. We don't need them. There mm. was even a proposal to get rid of some of this stuff. Interesting. The printing press rode roughshod over this and now we have silent E's in our <laughs> language. Chris, I think you need to write the book 100 Things We Lost to the Printing Press. <laughs> Maybe oral language would be one of those. Seriously, we've talked about the printing press a lot, yeah. but we haven't talked about the printing press was the one that froze misspellings into the language mm. and kept mm. a lot of the silent letters that we probably would have gotten rid of. Noah Webster, apparently in the late 1800s, we all know him. Yeah. He did the American Dictionary, would tried to get rid of some of these misspellings. And mm. he got rid of a few. One of them you know is color. The British still spell color. With the O-U? Yes. Yeah. That's the fold French way. Interesting. Noah Webster was the one that removed the U and said it should just be C-O-L-O-R. Interesting. That one worked. But apparently he introduced a lot of other ones that did not work. And it just didn't catch on. Because at that point, mass printing was happening. We had paper books across the nation. And we all needed to learn it the same way. So, Chris, are you saying that the internet is better reflecting uh, ways that people talk? I do think the internet is better reflecting the way pe ways people talk. It's okay. more quickly translating 
oralities into literacies. We all speak in lowercase. (laughs) And actually, just recently this week, there was a story out from some linguists that said in Miami, there's a new dialect happening. Really? About this? Yeah. Uh -uh. So there's always been like a Spanglish dialect. And I'm going to really maul this because it's not like I understand the Miami culture or the interplay between Spanish and English. But a new sort of dialect, because it's not just adding a Spanish word here and there, it's using Spanish grammar and English and Mm -hmm. these kind of things. And I think that probably wouldn't have been discovered or moved as quickly, except for the way that we text and speak and have social media. The point is for me, all this spelling... The idea of losing spelling Mm -hmm. is actually something that wasn't around for a long time in the history of thought and might not be very important for the history going forward. We will always read text, I think. But yesterday I was trying to label zucchini for my fridge (laughs) and I couldn't remember how to spell it. And you know what? I don't care. Z-U-C-H-I-N-I? Yeah, it's where the H. Yeah, (laughs) the H is what I couldn't. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's silent. I agree with you that languages are living and they're breathing and they're changing. And that LOL should be a word that we use. In the Oxford English Dictionary, which it is. (laughs) Right. That said, there is great benefit to standardization in communication, especially digital text. Being able to spell well means that you're able to communicate well. And good communication is valuable, especially in a highly mediated digital environment. Things can morph and change, but I do think that form matters. I don't disagree. What we're talking about, though, is cognitive offloading of the spelling. So the standardization can happen, but I'll let AI do it for me. In the future, spell check doesn't just underline the word in a red squiggly and let us decide. It's smart enough to also decide because it understands the sentence and understands the context and it corrects it. Okay. We will get worse at the stand-up spelling bee, Hmm. but we'll still be standardized. Who cares about whether any individual can spell? Let's just let the computers do it. Yeah, because this is just like every other cognitive offload. Instead of remembering how to spell zucchini or Mississippi, I can't spell that one. Uh, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, <laughs> we learned that. Instead of remembering how to do that, I have a little bit more memory for something else. Okay, what about when you write that nice card for your mom or your sister? Will they even know what it says? He's never heard of paperless post. <laughs> Those cards matter, man. They become tactile symbols, Chris. Next is going to be the Hallmark greeting card section. Ready? Chris, the next thing we lost to the internet was uninhibitedness. Say that. Can you spell that, please? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) A better way to say it maybe is risk-taking. She explores Mm -hmm. just our willingness to take risks In light of the fact that so much of our lives is now recorded and could end up in a permanent record, could end up on YouTube, couldn't end up on Facebook, could end up on Instagram, TikTok, there's this increase in, so to speak, surveillance. And she says, our self-conception becomes inextricably bound not only to the perceived feedback of others in the room, but also to the documented likes and comments of those who weren't even there. Because of that, we have this highly refined notion that we're going to develop a personal brand. I'm going to have a very clear set of who I am and what I present to others. I'm going to have this, she says, single homogenized version. And then she quotes Mark Zuckerberg, who says, it used to be that you would have different images for your work friends and your coworkers and for other people. And that's probably coming to an end pretty quickly, Mark Zuckerberg was saying. 
having two identities for yourself is an example of a lack of integrity. So if I take all these risks, if I try these different personas on, if I am different people in different contexts, but all those contexts land in Facebook or on Instagram, and if my boss sees what I'm doing on the weekends or my weekend friends see what I'm doing during the week at my job, these things collide together and I don't know how to navigate that. So I'm just going to narrow in on a very small window of who I am. And so my inhibitedness goes up and I'm less willing to take risks. What do you think of that? I'm obviously inhibited right now because we're testing video recording for this episode, which our Patreon subscribers are going to get. And so I'm like self-conscious about my laughing right now. But So I completely agree with Mark Zuckerberg. No surprise. But really, <laughs> I used to teach. It's a lack of integrity. Absolutely. I used to teach this, actually. Remember, I used to teach pastors and missionaries how to share their story in communications. And for a long time, missionaries used to send a prayer letter. So, like, they would send a report from where they're doing the mission sure. field. It'd be like a one page thing. I'd have a photo and they'd have, like, and we saw three baptisms. And, like, this is what we went to the market. And that would happen. I was a U.S. missionary, so I was at the University of Illinois for lots of years just reaching out to students. So I used to send these as well. And then later I became the person that taught everybody nationally how to do this. This was also at the transition of having social media. And so missionaries were starting to grapple with this idea of your Mm -hmm. work. The people that sent you money every month could actually live quite far away from you and they Mm -hmm. don't really have any way to verify whether what you said was true. Not that you would expect the missionary pastor to lie, but there was actually a lot of pressure to exaggerate. Okay. If that makes sense, you someone sending money, they're like, yeah, they want to see see spiritual results. The challenge for the social media was the immediacy and the realness. And I thought this was a huge opportunity to shift paradigms and said, No, we are who we are. We're doing the work God has called us to do. And we are the same person who is a missionary with people during the week and then goes out to a restaurant with friends. Hmm. There was a selectiveness to what photos you put in this print newsletter uh, very carefully. Some missionaries were like, I don't want to have a beer with a friend because (laughs) what if they see that and someone might disagree with that and be worried about that, like in a Baptist community, say. And I was like, well, if you're having the beer anyway, that's who you are. And they should know that. Mm. Like, not in a licentious way, but in an integrity way. This is who you are. Oh, man. If the answer was, oh, I liked these separate pockets of life, Mm -hmm. which allowed me to experiment or to avoid certain parts of who I was with certain kinds of people. And the internet breaks that. I think Mm -hmm. that's a good breaking. Oh man, I think I strongly disagree on some level, at least. I'm thinking about two different contexts. Let's take our podcast. There are ways I live in the world that I don't bring on to our podcast. Sure. If you just know me from the podcast, there are going to be things, maybe humor or other interests I have that have never shown up here. Maybe that's because I've chosen it. Maybe it's just because it hasn't come up. But like your collection of teddy bears. (laughs) Exactly. Chris, people don't know about you that you love biking. You love cycling in the city. Yep. And they may not get that if they just listen to this podcast. Maybe maybe you've mentioned it. We need to do an episode about the bike. Yeah. We got to do that. Absolutely do. But there are aspects that for whatever reason we've chosen not to share here. And I think that's okay. Another aspect that I'll bring up is for young people that are between 10 and 30 are exploring their identity. They're figuring out who they are. Again, I was talking to my 16-year-old nephew and I asked him, 
hey, how do you use Snapchat and Instagram? And students are creating that variety in their personality by using different platforms. Mm-hmm. Finsta, fake mm-hmm. Instagram, mm-hmm. right? They use a real Instagram for one thing and they use fake Instagram for their authentic self. Yeah. They need these spaces to explore their identity, to recognize who they are. And I think that's appropriate. And I don't think that's a lack of authenticity or a lack of integrity. No, but it's actually not very accurately describing the scene. So there's this sort of idea of if I put it out there permanently for the whole world to see. But the reality is, is lots of people are using private Instagrams, lots of people. And yes, Gen Z and then Gen A, we need to start getting down there. Yeah are using Snapchat, are using Google Docs, are using Finstas and other tools in ways that, honestly, like Gen X, Pamela, I think she's 51, is not yeah. using it like yeah. that. Yeah. And so she doesn't really think about it like that. She thinks about the Facebook archive that goes on forever and ever, but yeah. those kids aren't using it like that. Yeah. She does have visibility on at least Gen Z because she is a mom of kids. Okay, and fan. she does dive into both parenting and what it's like for kids in this environment. But I would agree with you. This is something throughout her book, the permanence that she ascribes to the internet, the ways that things will follow you around the internet and people are going to see, I don't really think is a accurate assessment. Like at one point she says, if your mom blogged about how you wet the bed when you were a kid, that's going to follow you forever. Yeah. And yeah. I just, that's just not true. Yeah. I mean, blogger died a long time ago. Yeah. And the, and the reality is Pamela Paul, not to be like heavily critiquing of her, but she actually lives in a more elite class. She's been an editor mm-hmm. connected with the New York Times for right. many years. And I think she, there was a w- one or two points where it almost felt personal where she's like, well, this will follow you. She almost seemed like her frame was like her and her friends. <laughs> Yeah. Who I imagine are people that run and get a little right. more like the press no, would want to write about them in cases. And so that's a little bit of a different world. Yeah. There are those stories where activity on Facebook comes up 10 years later and it prevents them from getting a job or whatever. But I think those are the exceptions. I think the book is a permanent record way more than the internet. And I think the longevity of the internet is still TBD. <laughs> we have books from yeah. a thousand years ago. Will we have... We're not going to have near the amount of content that's on the internet today lasting a thousand years. But well, the books were only a very small percentage of what was then too, but I'm with you. But I think Gen Z, Gen Alpha, they're totally going to adapt to that and they're going to integrate the internet in a way that is for Gen X, for millennials, a little bit foreign. If anything, I agree that people are thinking about themselves more commonly of like if the camera or the photo is on me or what, how yeah. will this play? Yeah. I think the resolution to that Hmm. is addressing our own identity and shame. When we think someone's watching us, is the audience the problem or is our stage fright the problem? Mm -hmm. Folks carry shame about who they are or what they do. And so they think I need to pull down the curtain when the reality is maybe we need to figure out how to make them confident on the stage. Yeah. And I, I even think about the conflict between liberals and conservatives and the values and virtues that they each have and the ways that they want to cancel each other and shame each other for the convictions that they each hold. And so it is that question then of, am I doing this for the audience? Am I scared of what XYZ audience will say about me? Or is this a true conviction that I have? And that's something we're still in a large way figuring out. But 
That's the opposite of the uninhibitedness. It's this, <laughs> I think it's this performative for an audience. Thing Absolutely. Where you discover, you get feedback from an audience and people start turning up the volume on things that get that feedback. And it creates some heavy polarization. Okay, one I brought is the new kid. The new kid. Meaning we used to be able to show up like at a new school. Mm. Suddenly nobody knew us. There's a new kid sitting in the classroom. And so you could sort of try out a new name or identity. Like I shifted schools actually several times, like in high school, yeah, junior high, grew yeah. up in the military. I did twice, once in elementary school and once in early high school. But I never really did what she describes, which is, okay, like now I can have a new nickname mm. or I'm going to use my middle name here. <laughs> Everyone's going to call me that. C-Dog. Or, <laughs> or I was maybe more of an athlete here and now I'm going to be more committed to my studies in another place. She's talking a lot about identity formation yeah. and how when you walk into a new community, you can shape your identity. Her thing is with the internet, you can't do that anymore because your Instagram profile will follow you around right. and everyone will know who you are. And this winds up linking a lot to, I think, what we were just saying. Sure. Because her point was when you become new, mm. you get sort of uninhibited. Mm. You get to try something new. Mm -hmm. And I have some of the same complaints. She goes, you lost that now. Now everyone's going to follow you. But it's really easy to delete an Instagram profile and just start a new <laughs> right. one. It's just like, gets a few clicks. And in fact, I think the opposite might be true in the sense that identity creation is really fast and possible on the internet now. Mm. There hasn't been another time in history, I don't think, where you can build an all new reputation from scratch in mm. like a year. Mm. All you have to do is start an account, Instagram, YouTube, somewhere and really just start focusing on that. There's one lawyer that I know that she just started reading court transcripts. She's a comedian. I think she has over a million followers. So some people might have seen her. <laughs> and she's just a junior lawyer in a law firm. Yeah. But I think she speaks at law conferences now because she's become really famous just by reading funny transcripts, like interactions between the witness and mm. the judge. Mm. You could just post wedding cakes online and suddenly you become a wedding cake person. Right. What's happened Influence. actually, this ability to create a new identity, mm -hmm. people aren't actually looking for your credentials or your background mm -hmm. in this situation. In fact, your ability to just create something as mm -hmm. a creator and mm -hmm. keep it consistent online becomes your credentials. Mm -hmm. So I can form this identity just by doing that. I can just put up a podcast and say, I talk about technology and theology and people are like, oh, well, they must know what they're doing. <laughs> Does that make sense about how I think like yeah. her argument was like you can, your identity is fixed yeah. and you really can't ever lose it. And yeah. my thought is not only can you change it, but actually you can create new identities online really easily. Yeah, I'm persuaded largely by what you're saying. Her sense of what permanence is, it doesn't really hold up in my book. Yes, we can reinvent ourselves more often and perhaps more conscientiously than we might have in the past. The one thing that's affected me has been, I'm talking about the creative side now, mm -hmm. like creating things. The thing that's gotten hard for me is the way to like actually make a difference is to really stay on one topic and one thing, right? <laughs> yeah, we've talked about this. And But this is the creator identity. This is what works online. So yeah. we want you to be one thing. You comment on politics yeah. or you comment on theology and technology. But you and I actually, I have a lot of things I work on and comment yeah. on. I do communications consulting. Yeah. yeah. I do bike class. I used to teach fundraising mm -hmm. in Christian environments. Like I know a lot of other topics, I do small business consulting, but I can't be all those things online. You're like, you're not supposed to be. It doesn't really yeah, work. Yeah. If you just post about seven different topics, that identity formation sort of dissolves in the internet. To become the new kid and to build a reputation, mm -hmm. you have to become a thin kid. Mm. Not to use a 
thin fat analogy, but I'm like a one dimensional yeah. kid. Yes. You need to be sort of all about this one thing. Like yeah. I'm the mom with a kid that struggles with this. And that becomes, people love to follow that because they relate to that one thing. Right. Maybe she's a professional as well. Maybe she has all these other things, but we're going to relate to her as that mom with that kid that yeah. struggles with that disorder. Yeah. And that's who she is. Yeah. I saw a TikTok yesterday and it, it's a guy who's just playing out these high drama scenes between Barbies and that's his whole TikTok and it it's Kill. like oh I'm sure it, it kills it's, that's it's, funny it's, it's pretty riveting it's funny <laughs> maybe what you're saying is what kind thi- of TikTok do you watch anyway <laughs> okay oh, it's the algorithm man <laughs> gives um, you what you want Adam. right but maybe what we lost to the internet is the multifaceted personality yeah this, I think that's fair the thick kid the three-dimensional person that has lots of different interests yeah in the age of the personal brand you stay on one track and you yeah. ride it till the end of the line. I think that is the difficult thing that we've lost there, that it's hard to be complex online. Yeah. I almost lament a little bit the way Facebook in its like heyday uh, in ways was a little bit more personal, a little bit more relational. Like mm-hmm. I was just walking down the street today or I read this book or <laughs> I have this photo and it could be pretty scattered. It could be like from your personal life. Sure. We do that a little bit maybe on Instagram now, but mm-hmm. it really does seem to be like to break out. You've got to have a brand. Yeah. But then for Mark Zuckerberg to say the lack of integrity is not having a single identity, it militates against that garden variety experience of the of early Facebook, which to be I fair, he's always there. championed like Zuckerberg's view of the social graph and other things, which actually we've never gotten to, even though as powerful as he was. Remember when Facebook used to have like 17 different ways you could describe a relationship to somebody else and you could put in your whole entire family, nieces, Mm -hmm, nephews, mm -hmm. and some of us did that. Mm -hmm. And those are still there, but like most people don't go back and do that data anymore. Yeah. It was creating a, his idea was creating a map on the relational world of data and even the metaverse and his whole future thing. I think he's still thinking that. Yeah. Maybe that will come to bear, but I actually think it was a more holistic picture of I think he was realistically saying, be everything that you are and then use this layer. And in the degradation of that is just be a thin brand. Mm -hmm. Okay, Adam, one last one from you. And this pick I know is going to be a good one. Chris, let's talk about solitude. (laughs) I'm going to pretend I'm not here. So Pamela says that one thing we lost was solitude and This made me go in lots of different directions, but a quote from her, she says, it's nice being able to connect at any moment. The internet's permanent display of connection can be incredibly comforting, but choosing not to share or not to partake can make you feel disconnected and even lonely in a situation in which you would have otherwise have never felt lonely before. Okay. When no one is liking you, it feels like no one likes you. Okay. Yeah, she's a really good writer. This notion of solitude, I think there are a lot of like spiritual elements to this. A quote that I remember from Blaise Pascal, he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. <laughs> and I think about that. Well before the internet, by the way. Yes, yeah. before the internet, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. It's another one I need to put in my file. Of It's a great that. quote. And I, I think Pascal is on something that we want to go out. We have so much ambition. We want to do all these things. And our inability to sit alone, to have this fullness and to explore who our own identity is, 
to be alone with our own thoughts and to know ourselves is a powerful and valuable thing. A more contemporary thinker, Henry Nouwen said, solitude does not pull us away from our fellow human being, but instead makes real fellowship possible. And his argument is that as we know ourselves, we able to bring that self forward into our relationships with others, but also to recognize that in solitude, we are with God and that God is with us. If the internet is this place where we're losing that solitude, how are we able then to bring ourselves into relationship, into fellowship, both with others and with God? And Henry Nouwen says, it's probably difficult, if not impossible, to move from this place of empty loneliness to this sort of full solitude without withdrawing from the distracting world. If the internet is constantly barraging us with information, if we see people connecting all the time and realize that we're not connecting, how do we fill in that space? Do we fill it in with sort of an attempt and ambition to go out and be social and be connected to others all the time, have that show up on our Instagram, have everyone see that? when that's actually inhibiting us and maybe preventing us from actually connecting with others in a more in-depth way. I mean, I think this is one I'm going to agree with. <laughs> we finally found agreement here at the end. She does a similar one in the book, Vacation, where like you can't go on vacation because your phone's with you and someone's going to try to slack you even if like, <laughs> I was just talking to one of our friends, editor at Christianity Today, and she was on vacation and she was saying, People that worked for her were trying to slack her on vacation. Uh. She had a choice to make. I'm going to out her on the thing because <laughs> she had people that were like, I just need a quick question. And she had a choice whether to answer right. the message or not. But she saw it. Yeah. It wasn't even solitude because she did see it. It did pop up on her phone. And then she actually uninstalled Slack for the rest of the vacation, uh. <laughs> which was probably smart. So yeah. she couldn't see those messages. But the chatter of the workplace came all the way into this place where she was trying to rest. Right. And so that withdrawing that you're talking about with Henry Nouwen becomes the device makes it impossible. And mm. people complain about it. And it they, yeah. they, and they, we still feel tethered in a way that for some reason should just be as easy as maybe uninstalling a couple of apps or muting a couple of things, but it doesn't feel that way, does it? It doesn't feel that way is right. Because the relational anxiety of being disconnected, which I think Paul is getting at, yeah is actually part of it. It's not just the app as the notifications. It's that sense of it's hard for us not to feel that bump, bump, bump of communication. Yeah. Even when you're technically, when you're IRL alone. We did the pandemic yeah. in our living rooms yeah. by ourselves. You had your apartment, but you could chat. You could FaceTime every yes. day. You could chat like we were talking. We're habituated to getting notifications. We're habituated to that regular point of connection even if it's even if it's blocked into our day where i spend two hours working and then i check my phone and respond to my messages or whatever but like we have that moment in our day whether it's spread out or in a block like we have these bump bumps yeah. habituating us to those experiences what's interesting is she relativizes this and she recognizes like blaze pascal long before the internet she recognizes that People blamed the train and the radio for doing the same things, that trains would bring people together so easily that experts worried people would be less capable of tolerating living far apart, or that the radio, one, one report noted Funny. that Americans had become so dependent on the radio that they could no longer deal with either solitude or loneliness. 
And so these devices, whether it's the train or a communications device like the radio, it's impinging on our solitude, huh, it's impinging on us. And we do this a lot where you and I, where we sort of relativize a contemporary problem and we say, but that's always happened. And this takes me back to the question that I started with at the beginning. How do we evaluate whether something from the past is something good worth keeping? Yeah. But is there something that can be lost from our encounters with technology? And how would we go about evaluating to a point where we can agree that something is lost? I have some thoughts on the solitude thing, but it involves changing culture, right? This is the interplay between culture and technology. Culture mm -hmm. is what's normal here. Mm -hmm. I think we have some examples of this. You know, parts of Europe, the entire country takes off for <laughs> three or four weeks, right? And everyone stops, and this isn't identical to solitude, but even to just look for that rest or that work yeah, break that's and that sort of that vacation, everyone does it at once, which really changes the timbre of what a rest or vacation works like. You're not looking for that notification or feel like you're letting someone down. Mm -hmm. And so I see it being possible for us to create a kind of culture. You need a new word. Culture creates a new label and a new word. We're in rest week. Okay. Everyone's in rest week. Mm. Actually, I do have a friend that works for a tech company in Chicago. I forget what they call it, but mm. they do this. And it's not charged against people's PTO and you have no individual selection. You can't change it. It's mm. just this week the office is closed and people mm. aren't working. Yeah. A, a company has a little bit of a choice to create a culture like that. It doesn't affect yes. the whole society. Right. But that's one example of how something could start. If we create these spaces, it creates a step towards mm -hmm. the ability for us to pull back. Mm -hmm. And maybe we get another word, which is like, and now I go to the country. <laughs> I think the word you're looking for is holiday. So we talked about vacation, but this notion of holiday, holy day, yeah, there you the go. set apart day, yeah. holy is this set apart for a purpose. We need less vacation and more holy days where we're setting things apart. We're setting ourselves apart from the norm, from the ways of being that the world is inculcating in us. And we're actually choosing a different way of being, a different way of living, you know, to our friend from Christianity Today and the ways that she chose to be the change that she wanted to see in the world, to quote that quote, she chose to influence her work culture by uninstalling an app and not being available. And that says not only to her peers, but also to those reporting to her, hey, uninstall Slack if you need to, in order to have a holy day, in order to have that holiday. Okay, Adam, we had a hundred things to choose from. We chose six. We have one more vice or virtue <laughs> to do. And I think I'm just going to go back to the one we did at the top. Would you say vice or virtue? The kitchen phone. <laughs> That's funny. You know, the one with the really curly yes. cord? Yep. Curly cord. <laughs> you could stretch for a very long way. Uh, I don't know if you had this. Yeah. I remember I'm about 12 or 13. My friend and I are toying around with the teal green kitchen phone that's in my parents nice. kitchen okay yeah and on the f it's a touch tone it's not the rotary dial and at the top are three buttons one has oh, yeah. a red cross a symbol of fire and i don't know a police badge or something yeah yeah you can <laughs> and you can like oh, immediately right. dial one of those I things forgot about that so, so we're totally just dinking around and 
I accidentally hit the police one. Yeah, yeah. I think it like rings and then I hang up like really fast. Yeah. I look at him. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just accidentally hit the police one. 15 minutes later, there's a knock at the door. (laughs) And my buddy and I, we're these 13-year-old boys and we're both like... Were your parents home? White face. No. It was like the middle of a Thursday afternoon in the summer. And these two cops are standing on my front porch in, you know, full gear. In a home alone situation. Yeah. <laughs> and they're talking to two 13 year old boys who are both giggling, but also like super sheepish all at the same time. You know, they're just trying to look at us and figure out is something going on here that shouldn't be. I'm explaining the phone keypad to them. <laughs> so obviously it is a vice. <laughs> what about you? Oh, I do remember those emergency dial programs. I'm sure they get rid of those real fast. So like <laughs> unintended consequences yeah. of technology. Kids Absolutely are t- true. How many Absolutely kids are true. dialing this thing? <laughs> I remember our kitchen phone several iterations, but the strongest memory is when we got our first cordless one. Mm. But it was a cordless. They were heavy. Like, like, and it had the telescoping antenna that you would pull up, right? So the main one was in the kitchen, but then there was like a satellite base like in the back oh, of the yeah, house. Yeah. I think, what house was this? And it, so it was only one phone. I don't think there was two phones, but it same, could go, it could line. charge in the other okay. one or something. But you would leave it laying around the house. You could take it and then set it down by the TV. Yeah. And then it was like, where's the remote? You by know, like, so couch. you're like, you're trying to, yeah, exactly. And, but remember they had a pager button. Oh, so you I could, don't think we ever had that feature, but I know you could go back about. to the base and you could just like press this big button and be like, bloop, 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 <laughs> cause you we, couldn't find it. <laughs> right. Which we still do with iPhones. Yeah, now. true. But this was so much fun. So I remember us playing with it all the time, pressing it and like trying to, to put it, it under things and press it like <laughs> surprise somebody. I don't know. Was that fun? Was when you were a kid. Yeah. And so the, I had forgotten about the cordless phone, but that was probably one of the earliest technologies I remember being like fascinated by, <laughs> loving that you could talk into this thing. I would even turn it on and walk around the house and you could actually hear static on those things, sure. right? It wasn't digital, it was analog. Huh. So like... If we got further away from the base, you would mm-hmm. hear some static and I would try to map how far it could oh go because I was a nerd kid. And <laughs> so I loved the cordless phone. I'm pretty sure I even left it in my room so I could be the person that answered and controlled the situation. Hi, the Ridgeway residence. So Sounds it's definitely, right. definitely a virtue. Well, Chris, I'm sorry that you have lost that experience and that <laughs> familial memory That's what you wanted to, say. to the internet. <laughs> it is a true tragedy, but... Thanks to Pamela Paul for writing this book. It definitely sparks a lot of interest, sparked a lot of memories. If you want to jump on and tell us the thing that you thought we've lost to the internet, click in our show notes and jump over to that voicemail feature. We yes. can You can leave us a message. For our Patreon supporters, we mentioned we are recording this episode on video. I don't think we're going to put this out for the general public because no, we'd be a little so. bit too embarrassed and we're not sure how <laughs> it's going to work. But if you're a regular supporter for us, we really love our regular supporters yeah, who give you. a little bit each month to help us make this podcast and produce it. And so we're going to give this as a special bonus over there. You can check out how you can support Device and Virtue at deviceandvirtue.com slash Patreon. 